Uh, good evening uh, and welcome. Good evening and welcome to the fifth Everything Flows Glasgow podcast. And tonight I'm joined by Douglas McIntyre and Ross Sinclair, and we're going to be talking about uh, a recent collaboration between the two of them for the charity Tiny Changes. And we'll see where that conversation goes to talk about their, their rich history and, and their love for music. So good to see you guys. Thanks for coming on. Nice to see you, Murray. Nice to see you. So we'll maybe just start with the, 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 the collaboration that you guys have done for um, Into Creatives fundraising project for, for Tiny Changes. Um, did they approach one of you first and did you choose to work with each other? Um, Stephen from, uh, from Into Creative and uh, the Mercurial Robert Hodgins, aka Bobby Bluebell, had mentioned the project to me and they'd asked if I, if I wanted to get involved in it. So um, as I was doing a Port Sulphur recording session and they and I thought it would be quite a good opportunity to do uh, It's Kind of Funny by Joseph Kay, which is a big song for me. So once I'd, once I'd started doing that, I kind of um, I'd met Ross on and off uh, various things, uh, but never had the opportunity to work together. So I, I thought it could be a really good opportunity to do something. Um, and yeah, obviously that's how it came about. That's how we got started on it. Although actually, uh, unfortunately, it took me a long time to uh, respond because uh, I don't know. This year's been a sort of crazy year um, for all kinds of reasons, of course. So um, yeah, I must admit I ended up sitting on it for quite a while, and but really thinking about it for a long time as well, and trying a few different things out because I mean it's a song that I really love as well, and uh, feel like it's kind of been there forever in a way. Um, so it's funny, like, I think if you're maybe thinking about, you know, making a visual sort of element for something that's just brand new, in a way it's much easier because you sort of, it's all new. But for something like this, it was, I thought it was really interesting because the, the version as well, it's a kind of, it's, it's almost, sound, to my ear anyway, it sounds almost more ancient than the original somehow. And this sort of, it's kind of has a slightly not dubby, that's, but I sort of, there's something about it that's quite kind of uncanny in a way, you know, um, or at least amplifies that part of the original. So so I, I sat with it for a while, so, and then and then did something totally simple. So it was, uh, but I think that's the, the song needs space to, to breathe and stuff. So I wanted to keep it simple. Yeah, and your, your, your film's really beautiful. And I love in the version you've done, Douglas, the, the guitar sound, so it's really yeah, beautiful different. and yeah. kind of trippy and then the film is also a little bit trippy in a way as well it works, yeah. works yeah I mean I think, I think uh, part of it was because I mean you know to, to my mind you, you can't better what Joseph Cave done so you've got to try and take a different approach and uh, I really like the whole idea of you know dystopia you know we're kind of in this strange situation at the moment with uh, COVID-19, uh, everything seems quite removed. And uh, and I wanted to try and get that in the recording. To, to me, when, I, when the, putting the drum machine down, I definitely wanted it to be a drum machine. And, and it kind of feels to me in my head like some early human league 
track, you know, sort of when they were influenced by J.G. Ballard and, and that side of things. So there was a whole bunch. I think it's when you're making a record, there's just a million different influences come through your head that have got no bearing in the way it ends up or the way that listeners would perceive it. So, um, and just we mentioned about the guitars there. I mean, you know, I'm a massive fan of Malcolm Ross and I thought about doing something different and I ended up just pretty much replicating exactly what he did, except I played it on a 12 string, an electric 12 string. And uh, it was was almost as much of a a homage to Malcolm as as anything else. And the great thing is, you know, Malcolm and uh, Paul Haig really love the the recording and the film. So I think think if they kind of blanked it a wee bit. Yeah. (laughs) Funny because you know when I was when I was doing the clip and wandering around in the forest with the camera and stuff, in a way, like I mean, it's just it just a sort of always an influence. But the Tarkovsky film Stalker, which I don't know, I can't think off the top of my head when that came out, but maybe early eighties. Can't must be not reasonably contemporaneous with the with the Joseph K track, but. In a way that the, in that film, it's this kind of like this crazy kind of search for this place where this thing exists that can change everything. And, you know, but it's this kind of slightly also nihilistic kind of journey. And, you know, it sort of ends in, you know, destined for disaster sort of thing. So in a way, kind of, I don't know, it really something about the song just chimed in with this kind of like moving, just keeping moving forward kind of thing, moving through the trees kind of thing and not really getting anywhere, but kind of just the journey somehow. That was, I mean, I, I totally loved that aspect of it, uh, you know, the Tarkovsky element, because that's you know, was a big, big influence uh, for me. And I thought, I thought you really captured that idea really well and I think not also, in any way shape or form but I think just also the um I don't know there was just something about the saturation of the colour at that yeah. particular time when you captured it you know yeah. which was, was just looked amazing and it just it just had a really uh so you say there's an ancient there's almost like a kind of primal feel to it which sounds That's really it. crazy you know and I mean it's it's you know it's kind of invisible to the to the viewer or the listener probably, but you know, I go walking up there quite a lot. It's just near where I live, but where I live is sort of in between Faslane and Coolport, you know, the two naval bases. So the bit of water you see at the end of it, that's where you also see the submarines coming up and down the thing. So I just sort of love this sense of it being this really beautiful kind of like, you know, forest kind of bucolic kind of, you know, really kind of rural kind of, rugged beauty sort of thing but then just a few miles away you know depending on which rumor you hear there's like all the kind of nuclear weapons are stored in the mountainside all hollowed out or mm-hmm. this or that whatever it is but you know it's just that sort of thing of the that intense kind of beauty and and kind of peacefulness like right next door to the sort of weapons of mass destruction you know or at least these submarines that carry them about you know so yeah it's crazy and so you also I think Oh, I was just going to finish off by saying that I think as well why I wanted to keep it so simple was that I think the song itself you really captured a, you know a real kind of it's really in a kind of I don't know how you put it like a 
has such an atmosphere, such a feel to it, the song, you know, it's like really enclosed, it's quite claustrophobic in a way, it's quite sort of, uh, it's quite tense, you know, and uh, I think that that needs needs space to kind of sort of be with, you know, and uh, I think the, the, the last thing it needed was like a really busy video with lots of cuts in it and lots of stuff happening, you know, I think you just want to kind of half close your eyes and well as I said to you I think it's like one of those videos you used to get in the old grey whistle test you know where they managed they just plucked something off the shelf but it totally fitted you know to like yeah. some Pink Floyd number or something you know yeah. anyway, and, and, and so fun. if your film came together quite quickly Ross after after a bit of consideration how, how quickly did the, the music come together Douglas because obviously it's a song you know very well but did you record it quite quickly or did, did you take your time no, once it's, I thought about doing it and I had a, an approach, uh, I think we did it in a day. I went into um, Green Door Studio that I work in quite a lot. The engineer there, uh, Sam's fantastic. So we just, uh, I think we did the whole thing in a day. Uh, I think, yeah. In fact, we mixed everything. We did everything in a day. So, yeah, it was quick. I mean, I like working really quickly. I hate having to... To me... If you haven't considered music too long, it just loses it for me. Yeah. Um, I mean, even like mixing, I'll, I'll let Sam do all the mixes and the port sulfur material because he's he's great. I mean, I'm rubbish at mixing. He's great at it. So I just let him go on with it. Yeah. And, and that, that, that studio is quite famous yeah. for having a lot of analog stuff. Did you, did you take a lot of your own stuff in or did you use a lot of the equipment? No, I just yeah. use all of Sam's stuff. I mean, it is, there's a lot of analog there. Uh, but he's got that good balance between analog and analog and digital. So there's positives with both, but yeah. it's largely got an analog. He likes recording to tape, so there's always tape hiss. You you can hear it, and it's yeah. uh, it's real. It's a warm sound. It's real, you know. Yeah, uh, good. In the band, I guess Joseph K. Um, there's a story in the the Into Creative website about why he chose the song, and it's quite a story, you know. You know, they were really yeah. good band and then quite a lot happened around the song and an event, a particular event relating to another band. Do you want to just... Yeah, I mean, that? with... um, I guess with the... Uh, you know, I'd been discussing with uh, the inter-creative guys. They wanted to, to this project to be uh, related to a charity. So I had, um, I'd always had in mind, I've done some work for Tiny Changes before and, uh, you know, very limited amount of work, but I thought, well, it'd be quite a nice, uh, if it's a Scottish project to try and raise money for Tiny Changes, which is, uh, you know, a charity that's there to try and support mental health issues with, with younger people, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously, um, you know, suicide's a part of that. And the, the lyrics of uh, It's Kind of Funny, I mean, Paul Haig wrote those lyrics uh, on here in the news that Ian Curtis had committed suicide. And because uh, you know, Joy Division was a massive influence on Joseph Kay, as they were yeah. in lots of bands. Uh, and I suppose the thing that's quite interesting in so many respects when we now think about modern communication is the way that the that story broke, that... Uh, Ian Curtis had hanged himself. It was um, I was at the, the bungalow bar in Paisley, uh, a gig with the, the Teardrop Explodes were playing, 
and it was it was this just tiny wee pub in Paisley. It was mobbed, and Julian Cope came on stage, and he just told the audience, you know, we've just heard from our friends at Factory Records that uh, Ian Curtis has, you know, hanged himself, and yeah, and then he played Sleeping Gas as the song. And apparently someone in the audience went outside the bungalow and went to an old British Telecom uh, yep. red telephone box and phoned up the BBC. And John Peel was on Radio 1 at the time and they got through to John Peel and they, they informed John Peel of this uh, tragic news. And John Peel then you know, mentioned that on his programme. And, and that's how the news broke. Yeah. It was just... You know, just thinking about it from a how society's changed, it's, that's staggering, it's, really. It's crazy, it? yeah. It's funny, re- reading that story, I was reminded, when I was 18, I went to see the Pastels play at King Tut's, and it was the night Kurt Cobain passed away, and you used to go out to these gigs, and um, rumours would fly about, and you had no way of knowing if they were real, you know, but but then the Pastels came on stage and, and it kind of said something. And, you know, I was got in the car afterwards to drive back to Kaluk with my friend and turned on John Peel and, and he was just, it was just Nirvana song after Nirvana song with no mm-hmm. talking. And you know, it was just very surreal driving back along the M8 and listening to Nirvana thinking, you know, this is a guy in a band that we really got into and it's, I know. that's it, you know, very strange. Well, I think, uh, I mean, as Ross will uh, back up. I mean Joy Division were such a pivotal band after after punk to me, you punk was amazing, but I think like the gap between punk and what I suppose started happening in Scotland with postcard, the really big band was Joy Division. They seemed to really uh in particular that first album, they just seemed to encapsulate so much and it really connected yeah. with everyone. So it was a uh, it was obviously devastating. It was so sad. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it was, uh, I think particularly, I mean, I don't know, I was just uh, a wee bit too young for punk, you know, as I was saying earlier, you know, my first gig was the Stranglers at the Apollo and then, you know, it was, the next one was the Damned, but as I was saying, we had to, me and my pal Neil had to toss up between the Damned and the Buzzcocks and we went for the Damned, but then found out later that Joy Division were supporting the Buzzcocks, so we missed our one chance to see them, but no, we would uh, we'd be drum machine and me and him would just like sit in his bedroom for hours playing all these amazing, first of all, all the Warsaw stuff actually, you know, which was uh, just a bit more kind of punky and raw edge, but still, and all those, you know, Bernard Sumner, you know, just like, I think he's totally underrated guitarist, just for oh, yeah. all those. With New Order as well. Line, you know, spare and just kind of like angular, but kind of, just incredible, you know, and per- perfect for playing in your bedroom with a drum machine as well, I think, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I guess that that kind of time for, for you guys, if you're both like teenagers or early 20s, were you like... Um, no, I was, late, I mean, I was like 13, I think, at that first gig, because uh, as I say, my pal Neil was a few years older, so I used to tag along with him everywhere, uh-huh. but... Uh, it was uh, that was my my good luck to introduction. Wow, uh, and and I guess um, so many people I know from who are just you know maybe ten years or so older than me that you know punk just blew them their mind you know and and it just seemed to kick down so many doors and I guess that's the spirit of that lives on in a lot of what you guys do with your music and your art and and, and things. Yeah. I mean I'm 
I'm I'm pretty sure I'm a good wee bit older than uh, than Ross. And uh, I was at school. I was probably in third year, maybe when in seventy seven or seventy six. Uh, or 77 I think it was so when punk started happening it was it was really incredible uh, it almost felt like every week there was a new amazing new record but very quickly you know uh, punk became a victim of itself almost became like a cliche so you started getting bands that deviated from it and those were yeah. the bands that I think were really interesting like you know the prefects and uh, well, Subway Sector a massive band in my life and Bands like uh, alternative television, uh, oh. so so things started moving away from the core of mm. you know the thrash side of punk, but even even you know I mean the among this accompaniment the Clash get a wee bit of a hard time for being a rock and roll band. Now, fair enough, but you know the Clash were an amazing rock and roll band. I mean I I saw them on the London Calling tour at the Apollo, and it was yeah. just like. Would you? So you were at that the same one? I think, I think that was about seventy nine. Was the first one uh, I saw the Clash. So was, I think it was that one. Probably. Well, Mikey Dread was the support, I think. And uh, so you had that whole thing where there was the reggae clashing with, you know, yeah. the Clash. You know what the Clash were doing, and and they were they were an amazingly inspiring you know, rock and roll band as well. So yeah, I love uh, love the Clash as well. They're great. I can. I mean, it's like even like you know, five years later when they did that busking tour, you know, when it was like the worst end of the lineup sort of thing. Just I don't know if you were around then, Douglas, but just that you know they played at the art school when I was at art school, and then it was like the Rock Garden and that mm-hmm. bar in Duke Street and all that. And I just remember like downstairs in the Rock Garden, standing like you know one foot away from Joe Strummer while he's like belting out like, you know, white man Hammersmith Pally kind of thing with no microphone and, you know, the the guy drumming on the chair and Paul Simon and just looking absolutely cool as fuck, you know, just sort of like, and and although that was like that, I don't, I can't even remember that last album was called, you know, Mm -hmm. but, you know, just it was a great set list he did and it's just like still, got a sense of that visceral excitement of what it must have actually been like, you know, in 76 or just at the very start of it sort of thing. That was great. Yeah, now you can tell just the, the, the passion from that memory. That would, that would have been a great experience. And and the two of you are just, you've always been involved in, in music and, and art ever since, really, I guess, ever since you got into these bands. Is, is, that, is that right? Yeah, I mean, I, I was I was into music at a really young age, actually. I mean, kind of freakishly, freakishly so, probably. Uh, I mean, I liked football, but I just get totally immersed in music. And I mean, mm. uh, I went to see these, I think the first concert I saw was a sensational Alex Harvey band at the Apollo, but I worked out recently, I think I was about 11 at the time. And wow. You know, I just went on my own. Well, my dad dropped me off and said he was going to see a man about a dog. I different times, pub probably. <laughs> and uh, and uh, and he's you know, and it's hilarious. You wouldn't let your eleven-year-old child do that now. But he was no. like, "Whatever you do, when you come out, just wait at the front door. If I'm late, I'll just be there in a minute." So, uh, <laughs> so you know, so I kind of got in really into bands, and and I was quite lucky because I did an old black and white television that I managed to commandeer. So he'd watch the old grey whistle test. Um, and you'd see bands like you know, like Can and uh, Beefheart. I remember Bebop Deluxe. I really get into them. 
Uh, and and you know that's when I saw the sensational Alex Harvey band they were on doing next. Yeah, I remember the Faith Healer and that and I I got the next album and that was it. I was no longer listening to the the pop charts as much, but I was suddenly yeah. grooving into the albums world. So wow. yeah, and and I think with these artists, I mean like you know Bowie is the the the, the person everyone would talk about because. You're into Bowie, starts talking about William Burroughs, Iggy Pop, The Velvets, and it becomes like, uh, you know, a clarion call. It's almost like university. You start discovering writers and artists. Yeah. I mean, you didn't get taught that shit at Straven Academy. Do you know what I mean? It's like yeah. Bowie, you know, was almost like the person that was pointing you in these directions and, uh, and opening up a whole new world for you. Yeah. And I, I think Scottish bands are very good at that as well. Like, directing people towards their influences and the, you know the albums they love certainly you know a lot of the bands that I grew up with you know like Teenage Fan Club whether it was bands they talked about in their interviews or covered in b-sides and things like that and I think to this day a lot of Scottish bands talk about their influences maybe more so than other. The thing that I always uh, thought was always funny was um, I mean there's been a lot of chat about it the last couple of years but you know like when I was at art school, when I started art school, you know, and, you know, well, just like when, I, when the Sudrang started and, and that all kind of started to, to happen, that was really exciting. But it's sort of like, I think the thing that it's sort of easy, easy to forget is like at that time, like most folk you knew were in like three or four bands and actually mm-hmm. maybe one sounded like the Velvets, one sounded like the Stooges, one sounded like something else, you know. And it's just like total luck if one kind of like struck a chord, no pun intended, yeah. or, you know, hit it off. Or for us, if we had someone like Sean, who's like every week he'd bring in these totally amazing new songs, and it'd be like, what? No way, you know? And it's another one, another one. And it's just like, wow, you know? And so that becomes a thing that sort of separates it out from all the other ones. But yeah, it's funny, like at that time, sort of, I think from early 80s onwards, there's, uh, you know, any night of the week you could go and see bands that were like, completely influenced by all these different sort of inspirations you know but uh sometimes they would make something out of those that was more than the sum of the parts and then it became something else which is kind of really exciting yeah and then just talking about gigs and memories uh, i think it was uh, a year ago yesterday that i was uh, over in straven douglas for uh, a norman uh, blake and uh, eros child's show uh, just before everything went a little bit crazy in the world and and I think it was scheduled for around this time as well. Tim Burgess was meant to be playing Straven, mm-hmm. but it's, it's been put back. What, if you want to tell, we'll talk a little bit about what both of you are up to just now. And I guess the fresh stuff that you're doing in Straven is quite a big part of your your life, Douglas. Yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I kind of grew up in Straven, and then it's that typical thing. You live up, in, you live in a small place. I mean, you're from Kurluk originally. Yeah, yes, so, I know Straven. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I mean, I just wanted to. I mean, I loved growing up in Straven. But I wanted to get to Glasgow as soon as I could. Yeah, you know. So uh, <laughs> it, it just becomes that thing that you. Um, I mean, the only you know, I, I really hate didn't. You know, I didn't like staying here. I wanted to hit the city, uh, but eventually. Um, I moved back, you know, the draw of the wild, and uh, and when I moved back, it was it was nice because you know there's it felt like there was the opportunity to try and do some different things. There's a lot of uh, you know um, sort of really small businesses, you know, like and 
you know, kind of a craft type element, a wee bit like, you know, I suppose West Kilbride, you know, is a craft town. There's elements of that in Straven. But what they'd never ever been in Straven was any semblance of live music. Um, you know, there, strangely enough, there was a studio in Straven, which is where the first Orange Juice single was recorded. I didn't know that. Uh, and, um, and just after after that, the, uh, the the band I was in, just again, just through bizarre circumstances, we get invited to, re- to record a track with uh, Alan Horn and Malcolm Ross producing us. So the band were called Article 58, and we used that same studio. And for a wee while, the studio started uh, um, being used by bands, so for about two seconds, Straven felt quite, quite cool. But then, uh, and it stopped feeling cool. But it's, <laughs> um, it's, you know, it was really just a chance to try and do something in the in the, the town that I thought could be really good. It's a lovely old hotel, uh, as you'll know yeah. from being there. And I just felt that uh, the only way it could really work in that room was to do acoustic stripped down shows. Yeah. But that in itself offered different opportunities because. Um, for example, Lloyd Cole was the first artist that performed, and uh, you know we can usually ask the the uh, the performers if they would do a cover if if they're up for it, and uh, you know someone that's influenced them. So Lloyd did a uh, "Life's a Gas" by T Rex, yeah. And obviously the night you were there um, to see Norman and Eros, they did uh, "The Kids Are All Right" by yeah. the Who right at the end of the night. So it's um it's a lovely wee community and it's it's very much about trying to build a community idea as opposed to, you know, I don't want to be a rock and roll promoter. I don't have the, to- <laughs> don't have the tolerance level of of uh, right. you know to deal with that. But yeah, no, it's it's great and it's it's a great venue. It's it's like a it's just a very different night out to go out to Straven, and you know I, I went in a, a dark wet February night, but I, I look forward mm. to going in in autumn and. Hopefully in some well maybe not summer nights but autumn nights and well we've you, got you know as you know there's there's a lot of good people lined up to play you yeah. know that um you know Straven's never had anything you know like that really and and I think you know when I was you know, Robert Forster's going to be playing which is uh, you know I'm excited about I'm excited about all the bands playing of course but when I you know, when when I was talking to Robert about it he just really kind of got into the idea of it being not in Glasgow or Edinburgh, yeah. Uh, so I think there's there's a certain thing that is there's a freedom for artists to, to play at it because they don't feel they have to put on a you know a bigger so show. It's, it's, more, it's, it's more of a relaxed true. atmosphere, I think. Yeah. And and when are you hopeful that you'll get to? Oh, but again, will it be September or October? Do you hope or? I don't know. Who it's, knows? it's so difficult to tell. You know, I think we've got. Um, you know, we're we're kind of shifting dates around. Constantly, I mean, if it was September, we've got uh, King Creaso to the end of September, so yeah, that would be great. Mm-hmm. But uh, we'll see. Who knows? We'll see. And then, yes, and then Ross, I haven't made it yet, but it's one of the many uh, gigs that have uh, must be like a dozen gigs that I had tickets for before this all happened. That I mean, I think I've just now forgotten what they all are. You know, yeah. <laughs> the, the only one I was worried about was uh, Pixies at the Galvanizers because I bought like half a dozen tickets because all my kids wanted to go. So it was like three hundred and fifty quid's worth or something. Uh, I think that got refunded. That one actually because uh, it was totally cancelled. But yeah. And then Ross, you've got uh, an album coming out soon on, on last night in Glasgow. 
Yeah, aye. No, it's great. It's really exciting. I, I had to laugh actually earlier when Douglas was talking about he wants to like to do it quickly and just get it done because actually, well, it's called Real Life is Dead and other show tunes. And it's kind of songs from that I've kind of written and recorded for lots of exhibitions that I've done over the last sort of 20 years. So the songs are really, they're really from recorded from a long kind of period in different places and quite a lot of them, actually some in this room here at home, but uh, actually I did, did a couple of tracks at Green Door, which was great actually as well. And um, a couple with the guy Mark Freegard, um, who did we studio Coyote, and oh, he'd worked with like, breeders and stuff, and lots of other people. He's a great guy, actually. Oh wow! Um, and uh, so yeah, I mean, I just uh, had all these songs, and I didn't really know quite what to do with them. And uh, I'd done well. I'd done the artwork for for Teen Canteen, uh, the the album they did with Last Night from Glasgow. I think was that yeah. the first release or first or second release? That was uh, one of the first few releases. Uh, I think it was the first vinyl album they put out. Aye, so I'd, I'd got to know Ian a wee bit. So I just kind of I gave him a shout and said, "Look, I've got all this stuff," and he said, "Well, I thought we'd do an album, you know. And can you get it? Can you make it into something, you know?" And I was like, "Aye, great, you know." So he was really enthusiastic. So. We just kind of kept chatting about it, and uh, I know it's about to become a reality. I'm just kind of like getting the last of the sleeve stuff tidied up. This the music's all done, so so yeah, that's it's really exciting, and it's uh, a lot of the songs. Some of the, the exhibitions were in China and Japan and France and in the States and all over. So quite often I'd work with some people in the place or artists who spoke the language of the place. I was. Uh, Oh, sorry, that's my uh, work stuff coming through still at this time of night. Oh, my God. But, uh, um, yeah, so there's like, it's like duets on some of them where I'm singing with like a Chinese woman or sort of, and there's a Japanese woman who sings on some. And uh, and also various, like, I did a show in Detroit and I got the kind of all the artists. So it was like a group show and they all sang on it like a chorus kind of thing. So... Oh, sorry. There's sorry. like Ted Orange and John Nicholl and Rosie O'Grady and um, Francis McKee, who's not Francis McKee from the Vaselines, but Francis McKee, from who's the director of the CCA. And uh, it was organised by a guy called Cedric Tai in Detroit. So anyway, loads of stuff on it and sort of collaborations and things. So Thanks. I am really excited about that. So And it's it? really, although I've done quite a lot of releases sort of informally for exhibitions and stuff and some records and different things. It'll probably be my first official album release since the Soup Dragons album in like 1988. So oh, wow. <laughs> that's quite uh, the first one on a proper label anyway. So yeah, I'm and really we're, we're, ta- we're talking about... And I love Last Night from Glasgow. I mean, it's a great... I love the kind of the, the way they work and the things that they do and deal oh, with yeah. Ian's brilliant. It's just... Uh, oh, they've really so come on since... Because I, I was involved with Ian at the start and then it just it, it just took off and got, got so big and... Um, and it's it's still it's kind of like modern day punk, you know. It's like you know people come together. It's that community thing you were talking about, Douglas, and and support artists and music to get it out on vinyl. And yeah, it's it's unbelievable what they're doing now. It's I don't know how Ian does it. To be honest, <laughs> I know, I know. I mean, and it's just all volunteer and kind of. It's funny, you know. It's I, I just love the model of it, you know, and how yeah, I, you know. The whole kind of, I mean, I don't know if you can really have a, a socialist kind of record label, but and I know that he 
they don't discuss it in those terms, but in my mind, that's what it kind of looks like. So yeah, I, really, I, I, I think a few people have said that. And Douglas, you've recently started a kind of crowdfunding model to support some of your own. Yeah, pretty much um, put uh, Creeping Bent uh, through Patreon for future sort of digital releases and just uh, we've got so much archival material that uh, it's a really perfect way of putting it out. Uh, I I just, probably part of it was, uh, it was very inspiring seeing Last Night from Glasgow. Uh, I think what they're doing is great. Um, And we've just put out an Alan Vega album on vinyl and the costs are really really expensive you know yeah these vinyl yeah. was selling really well which is great but there was just a there's a real fear that well if this doesn't sell it's you know there's a lot of debt accrued um, yeah. and it just became too risky to keep that idea of of releasing vinyl so that was one of the reasons that drove me to the idea of maybe having a subscription model and when I started speaking to people that are really into the label they were really into the idea of getting exclusive you know sexual objects concerts or uh, you know filmed concerts or rare tracks or unreleased stuff so there's a lot it's basically a mixture of uh, unreleased archive material and bits of art that can go out but also a uh, I think there's like three new albums that we were going to release this year, but we're just going to release them digitally, like a track at a time, through uh, you know to this event patrons. So, yeah, it does feel very much like going back to the you know the the old art world of having patrons. Uh, but the opposite of that is that you and it's a five a month, so I don't think it's like, you know, I, I think it's really good value. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think it's like, I think, I think in a way it's a really good model that, you know, you know, although people, you know, forget stuff, but in a way it's, it's, it is a kind of real show of support and it's, uh, you know, folks saying, look, we really like what you do. We really like the Creep and Bent idea and, you know, let's support that. And we totally trust you to do the things that you do that we really like. And that's why we're supporting you. It's not, you know. You know, I think some of these things that, that operate not not in like record labels, but in just other things, you seems a bit naff, you know. But I think when it's a really great idea and it's a really great kind of um, source of all this kind of different music and art and all the things that you're you're talking about, you know, it's a sort of trust thing as well, which I really yeah. like. You know, it's I, like I think I think that's a, a, doing a, a real key thing. You've got to if you can demonstrate the quality of stuff that you're looking to do. Yeah, you'll get support from from music and art fans, and certainly yeah. having seen that ex- explode with last night from Glasgow, you know we set off to have like a hundred people paying fifty pounds a month, and now it's I think it's like about five hundred people paying not fifty pounds a month, fifty pounds uh, a year. Yeah, yeah, um, which which is just incredible, and it, it just gives uh, artists such a platform to get their, their their music out there, and you know they're now they're now doing reissues of albums as well, which is. Which is brilliant, but it just goes to show you there is a community of people there who, who want to support music and art, and and I think if you can harness that, you can do amazing things with it. I think also what Ross said there's spot on because there is a I think a desire to support things. I mean, I think the uh, for example this week the the you know the the uh, you know the universal love that's been shown towards Mogwai and everyone yeah yeah to be 
one. That felt like a victory for everybody that's ever been involved in the independent sector. Yeah. And and it, and it just feels absolutely amazing that they've managed to do that. You look who they're up against. You know, it's like the might of Warner Brothers. Yeah. And they did it on their own terms. It's a magnificent thing. Yeah. That was that was it's amazing. So yeah. I was playing the album tonight in the kitchen when I was making the tea and the kid, really, really loud, ceiling granny, like totally loud. Like, and the kids are like, what's this? And it's like, Mock, it's number one. I used to play football with uh, Craig, who helps run rock action, you know, and I just can't believe that he's got a, a number one record, you know. Yeah. And you're right, they're up it's against very, the, um... the big guys. Yeah, and I mean, they can pull out all the dirty tricks that are in the book, so they managed to hold on and do it, which was great. Um, of course, it's like, you know, most of my students, I ask them to do some research into rock action, and they're like, who, what, Mogwai, what, who, who's, what's all this weird rubbish you're asking us to listen to again? But, you know, from a personal perspective, I feel totally vindicated, I can say, number but one. Totally. Number, I mean, number I mean, one of the pop charts. Absolutely. And I think it's, for me... Part of what I really like about that, and it's about, it's in the things that you do in Creeping Ben, and it's in Last Night from Glasgow, it's a sort of self-determination, it's like a sort yeah. of confidence, and well, like you say, it's a support, you get a few people to support you, and then you can do things the way you want to do them, and as, I mean, I don't know Mogwai very well, but, you know, as far as I see, they, they do, they've set things up in a way that they can run it themselves, and they yeah. do the things they want to do, and they can expand things out to a scale that fits, and you know, they can, you know, they're in control of it. They're doing what they want to do. They're running the business like the way they want to do it as well, rather than being beholden to, well, like you say, Warners or, you know, whatever, Sci Records or whoever it is, but all these models that just don't even really work anymore anyway, you know? So well, that, that's it. And I think, you know, you've got, you, we've always looked to, to that kind of punk spirit to kind of kick doors down and, and question, you know, ask that question, why? Why are you doing it this way? Why not do it? Our way, you know, and and look yeah. after the artists. Well, you just and, do it your own way. That's the thing. You can, that's it. you know, it's just a bit of support. You do what you want to do, and then people want to sign up for that because they love it. Because you know, they love what Douglas is doing at Creeping Ben or Last Night from Glasgow or whatever it is. You know, it's. Uh, I think that's partly. Maybe it's a Glasgow thing. Or maybe it's a Scottish thing. That's sort of like it's a sort of DIY thing. Maybe that's what came out of the punk thing and then through the 80s and postcard and the art scene and the music scene and that sort of kept going and really stayed in the city, I think. That sort of, that yeah, ethos. Uh, that, that's gone right through to, you know, like the dance labels and, and club Absolutely. scene and stuff like that as well. They just they just do their own thing. And yeah. this week is, uh, again, you know, the news coming out about Daft Punk splitting up, but... But, you know, going back to, like, um, the, the Slam guys putting them on and putting their first records out and stuff, there's just that punk ethic. Um, yeah. So we've just we've just got, we've got less than one minute to go, so we'll, we'll just wrap up. But yeah. that was really great just to, to, to hear about what you guys are up to, the, the brilliant collaboration you've done for, for Tiny Changes, um, and, and to go back and hear about the bands you've loved and... And still well, let's hope it's not the last collaboration, Douglas. It'd be great to do something else at some point. Oh, definitely, definitely mm. be, be fantastic. Whatever. So, that would yeah, be good. when we open up, we'll get into it. Yeah, but, I look forward to it. Well, thanks so much for your time, guys. Enjoy All right, your, well, your thanks, evening. Thanks for asking us, Money. That was great. Nice to speak to you. And okay, you. thanks, buddy. See you. All right. Bye. Bye.